Gracious God, you promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So the context of your gospel reading for this morning uh, is actually Matthew 19. Our gospel reading is, begins at verse 1 of chapter 20 of Matthew. But you have to go back to chapter 19 to really understand what's going on in today's gospel. And what's going on in chapter 19 is the account of the rich young man who comes up to Jesus eager to follow him, asking, good teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's a law kind of a question. What do I have to do? What laws do I need to obey in order to get to heaven? And because the man asked Jesus a law-oriented question, Jesus gives him a law-oriented answer to kind of cut him off at the knees, hopefully. So he answered, if you would enter life, keep the commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, etc., etc." He covers the second table of the law, the commands that apply to how you treat your neighbor. And he says, all of these I've kept from my youth up. So then Jesus doesn't give up. Jesus takes him to the first table of the law, fidelity toward God above all else. And he says to him, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And if you know your scripture, you know that the young man went away sad because he had great possessions. And so the result, Jesus asked this question, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are greatly disturbed by this. And they ask, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus gives a brilliant answer. With man this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. Then Peter says, look, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And that really sets the stage then for the gospel reading, because the gospel reading is an explanation of what will be for Peter and for all others who follow Christ. And I want you to take a look on page 10 of your worship bulletin, the gospel reading there. Notice verse 29, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Now that's grace. And will inherit eternal life. Now notice verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then notice the very end of the lesson, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. He repeats it. He kind of switches it there, but notice how the gospel reading for this morning is bracketed. It's framed by that statement. The first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, on the last day, there will be an equalizing of all humanity. A great leveling will take place. 
And that sets the stage then for the gospel reading for this morning, the parable of the tenants or the workers in the vineyard. There Jesus teaches equal compensation for unequal labor. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now this harvest takes place in the spring of the year. That's when the grape harvest would occur in Israel. And so a large influx of workers would be necessary to bring in the harvest. And and the urgency of the harvest explains why the owner of the vineyard went back to the marketplace again and again and again during the day. We need more help to bring in the harvest. The harvest is great, the laborers are few, Jesus would go on to say. The workday would begin around 6 a.m., would end around 6 p.m. or whenever the sun set, and all those hours were needed to bring in the harvest. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now scholars like to tell us that a a denarius is one day's wage. Where do they get that idea? From this verse is where they get it. This is where we learn that a denarius is equivalent to a working day's wage. And notice, the owner agrees with them for one denarius per worker per day. Now, this agreement in in the Greek, the Greek word is symphoneo, We get our word symphony from that. It means to sound the same or to agree. So a denarius is what the workers want and it's what the owner agrees to. Now let's skip to verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Those who are hired first are going to see what's going on. Then those hired, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, that is not equal pay for equal work, which is what our laws today require. It is equal pay for unequal work. And so I asked myself, this is Roman numeral one on page 11, Would God's payroll practice fly today? Would it be legal or would it be illegal in our culture? Would the Lord doing this today, would he be in violation of our laws? And so I checked out letter A, the Equal Pay Act of 1963, and that applies to sex discrimination regarding pay. So you you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex when it comes to work that is the same or that is equivalent sort of work. So I'm going to assume that all these harvesters were male and the Equal Pay Act would not apply. Letter B, how about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, 1964? Well, that applies to racial, ethnic, or religious discrimination only, okay? And I think probably all the harvesters are Israelites. They would be Jews, the same uh, ethnicity, probably the same religion. 
most likely, I'm not a lawyer, but the way I read the law is it would not apply today. So letter C, the answer is no. God would not be in violation of our laws. But equal pay for unequal work just smells fishy. It doesn't seem fair. And I'm not the only one who thinks that way. Look at verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumble at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You see, therein lies the problem. You have made them equal to the rest of us. Roman numeral two, the problem is equal treatment. The workers hired first don't want to be treated as the same as everyone else. They want to be treated better. Letter A, this reflects the natural religion of humanity, the default religion of the human race. You receive what you deserve. That's the law. That's the natural religion of humanity is the religion of the law, God's law, written on our hearts, Romans 2.15. Point number one, the law is written on our hearts. God's law says, if you achieve, then you receive. You experience blessing. But if you fail, you go to jail. You experience God's curse. And when people run with the religion of the law, they always forget the, the, the curses for disobedience. They only think about the blessings for obedience. And they dumb down the law to think they're obeying it pretty darn well when in fact they're fooling themselves, they're disobeying virtually all the time, and they're forgetting about the curses that append to disobedience. So point number two, because of this, because of the opinion of the law written on our hearts, point number two, it takes an extreme parable, an extreme parable for the Lord to reveal how gracious he really is and how sinful we really are. Consider how gracious God is to those hired later, especially at the 11th hour. Consider how gracious he is. Those guys could not get in a full day's work. No one hired them. But they still have bills to pay. They still have families to support. And, and maybe, I, I don't know, but just maybe the owner took that into consideration and paid them accordingly, maybe. In the religion of the law, you get what you deserve. By contrast, letter B, the religion of the gospel is that you receive what God graciously gives. You receive what he graciously gives through faith in Christ alone. St. Paul writes, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from the works of the law means without the works of the law, exclusive of the works of the law, or any contribution by you or me. So point number one, God wants to deal with us not according to our works, but according to his grace. According to his grace, or according to his works, not our own. When it comes to salvation, 
God doesn't pay wages. He gives gifts. Now when it comes to condemnation, he pays wages. But salvation, he gives gifts. So point number two, the last become first through no merit of their own. They worked only one hour. They didn't deserve a denarius. The first become last by their objection to grace or their objection to equality. Those hired first evidently believe they have more right to the owner's property than does the owner. They assume that because they worked all day, they have the right to overrule the owner's generosity. That is evil. It is injustice to deprive the owner of doing what he wants with what is his, especially when it's gracious. So let her see, God is not only steward, he is owner. Not just steward. I mean, God's a steward. He manages his resources a certain way. But he's the owner as well. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So we are all managers of what is God's. We manage what belongs to someone else. God is manager of what is his. He could do whatever he wants with what is his, but he chooses to be gracious. Letter D, God's goal of equality. God's goal of equality. You know, Mary sings in Luke chapter 1 that God brings down the proud and lifts up the lowly. Luther said that's all he does in Scripture. And what is that but leveling humanity, equalizing everyone? Moses writes in Exodus 16 regarding God's gift of the manna from heaven. He writes, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each gathered as much as he could eat. What is that but God's equalizing influence? Luke records in the book of Acts that there were no needy people in the Christian community because when a need arose, people would give voluntarily to that need. And what is that but God's leveling, the leveling influence of the gospel in our lives? And finally, recall the saying of Jesus that frames our gospel lesson in which the parable is an illustration of Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Again, God's equalizing influence. Restoring equality to humanity is God's goal, and yet, God also treats you and me as individuals. For example, there are passages in Scripture that speak of rewarding people according to their works. Now, the rewards are always rewards of grace, the reward far outstrips anything you could have earned. Verse 29, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. That's far beyond what anyone could deserve. That is grace, not merit. And they will inherit eternal life. So, it suggests that not all rewards are the same. 
God can individualize rewards and make them specific to the person and to the works they've done. But he's also able to equalize the outcomes on the last day because he is generous to a fault. So, number three, the application. This is Pledge Sunday. We make our pledges today, and well, we should. But the church continues to thrive, not because people make pledges. The church thrives because people make pledges and then act upon them. People make and act upon their pledges because God makes pledges to you and to me in the gospel, and God acts upon them. He fulfills his promises to us. Not only does God fulfill his promises to you and me, but he far exceeds them. He doesn't just give. He gives far beyond what we could ever earn or deserve. That's true not only of time, treasure, and talent. It's especially true of forgiveness. As one of my professors loved to say, Jesus forgives you more sins than you've got. That's how generous he is. And so in our gospel reading for this morning, Jesus calls us to repent of our self-importance and to see him not only as generous to us, but generous to all. And let her be. The danger of good works or the temptation of good works. Good works are like money. Money's not evil. It's just dangerous, okay? And good works are the same. Our good works can be more dangerous than our sins, according to Luther. Those of us who've been in the church for many years, those of us who endure long meetings at night, those of us who teach classes, who faithfully attend divine services, those of us who give sacrificially, we are tempted to feel more like owners of the church rather than stewards of the church. We are tempted to think more of, of our opinions than we do of others. We think our opinions should carry more weight than the opinions of those who are less committed than we. We're tempted to think of ourselves as indispensable, but of others as less so. We forget that the labor in the Lord's house is a gift from him. It is not drudge work for which we deserve some sort of compensation, and angry we are if we don't get enough. Any position of responsibility in the church is a precious gift from the Lord. Just as those who labored all day in the owner's vineyard were given the gift of full employment for the day, those 11th hour workers would have much rather worked all day. They were afraid of never being employed. God's employment is always a gift, whether it's parenting, whether it's pastoring or teaching, whatever it is, it's pure gift. You don't earn it or deserve it. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, but even our good works can be an occasion for stumbling when, having done them, we think more highly of ourselves than we do of others. Bob Striedelmeier passed away in 2007. He was a founding member of Grace Lutheran Church, and I think probably of anyone I could think of, more or less the moving spirit behind this congregation, the founding of it. 
He held every office in the church and every Sunday. Bob would be the first one in the church, unlocking the doors, turning on the lights, and he would be the last to go home, turning off the lights and locking back up. This congregation was built on the backs of people like Bob and his wife, Betty. And in Bob's funeral sermon, I referred to him as Mr. Grace Lutheran. But in the final analysis, was Bob any more important than Bobby Setzer? Was he any more important than Marianne Denninger? Not according to the parable. We make distinctions among ourselves. God doesn't do that. We may esteem some jobs in the church to be more prestigious than others. But in the end, we will all be compensated the same and far beyond anything we deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.